0: coming for the last sacred places on Mother Earth. And we are defending them. We've been defending them. From the Minnesota Reformer, this is Reformer Radio. I'm Max Nestorak. For six years, environmentalists and native tribes have been trying to stop the Canadian company Enbridge from building a new oil pipeline through northern Minnesota. So far, Enbridge has been winning with another recent victory in the State Court of Appeals.
1: This is viewed as as, as essentially a a modernization
0: project to upgrade what's there so that it is safer, so that it does have
1: less impact on, on the environment.
0: Opponents of the pipeline have ramped up their resistance, Chaining themselves to equipment and facing arrest as Enbridge races to finish construction in the coming months. How long
1: are you willing to sit there for? As long as it damn
0: takes, or until they come to take me away. This week, reformer reporter Rylan Ishens explains the history of Line Three and the future of its replacement. It's Friday, June 18th. Rylan, take us back to the very beginning of this story, wherever it begins.
1: So the story of Line 3 starts back in the 1960s, which was when the first um, large-scale commercial production of tar sands oil in Alberta, Canada, started taking off. We've all heard about the tar sands. Here they are. This great reservoir of oil which someday, somehow, would be tapped. So in Alberta, there's this area that covers thousands of square miles um, with the third largest reserves of oil in the world, about 165 billion barrels of oil kind of under the ground there. Um, But this oil is different than the oil that we think of, you know, that's kind of drilled out of the ground. Tar sand is basically a gucky mess. It's really thick and sticky and viscous, like sort of almost like putty or peanut butter or something like that. Let me kind of simplistically suggest that uh, if you took a a cup full of of dirt and sand. Put in about, uh, let's say, two tablespoons of molasses, drop the temperature of that down to right around the freezing point, you've got something that's similar to tar sand. And our prime purpose in life is really to get that molasses back
0: out of that sand, dirt mixture.
1: So oil executives spent um, the first half of the 20th century spending, you know, years and millions of dollars trying to figure out how to do that in an economical way. The history of getting tar out of the sands has been one long, humbling experience. So line three was completed in the late 1960s to bring that tar sands oil all the way from Alberta to Superior, Wisconsin, where it goes to refineries from there. But when Line 3 was built, the technology for building pipelines and the materials um, and regulations were not as good as what we have available now. So the pipeline is corroding, it's susceptible to cracking, um, and Enbridge says there's no way to fix it while it's in the ground. And Line 3 has actually leaked 18 times since 1990.
0: And when you say it's leaked 18 times, what does that look like?
1: So most of those spills have been large spills, um, meaning more than 50 barrels of oil were released, and seven of them have been in Minnesota. And that includes the largest inland oil spill in U.S. history, which happened near Grand Rapids in 1991, when more than 1.7 million gallons of oil were released. Wow. And there have been other spills um, over the years, including in 2010, two major spills on other Enbridge pipelines in Michigan and Illinois.
0: There is no escaping the oil. You can smell it everywhere. You can even feel it in your throat. Take a look here into the Kalamazoo River. You can see the slick traveling down the waters.
1: We start tonight with another Enbridge oil spill less than two months after a pipe burst in Calhoun County, spilling oil into West Michigan's waterways. It's happened again. This time it's in Illinois. So, out of those came a federal consent decree that said that Enbridge has to replace Line 3 if it could get the permits to do so. Um, And that brings us to the Line 3 replacement. And Enbridge first submitted the applications for that project in 2015.
0: How is this Line 3 replacement proposal received?
1: Uh, So, the project has been pretty divisive from the outset. Um, with people on all sides of the issue telling me about conflict with their friends and neighbors and family members um, over this pipeline. And part of it comes out of a split on kind of views of the future of fossil fuels. So people for the project are coming at it from this perspective that whether we like it or not, um, we need this oil that comes through this pipeline, and a pipeline is the safest way to transport it and people who are opposed to the project argue that we don't need to be reliant on oil that this is a choice we're making and instead of spending, you know, time and energy building this pipeline we could be investing in sustainable energy and like a greener sort of future mm-hmm. so support for the project is coming from labor unions who have an agreement with Enbridge to provide the workforce for the project and a number of people who live near the route and see it as an economic boost to their towns, um, especially during the pandemic when tourism and travel was so limited and a lot of these places weren't seeing the traffic that they normally would. Um, One of those people is Lonnie Lee, who I spoke to in January when he was the mayor of Hill City, which is a small town um, on the path of the Line 3 replacement.
0: It's a big change for our community. Uh to me,
1: it's an improvement. We're on our way up economically. It's mm-hmm. helping to take the place of what colbus knocked us down. The pipeline has brought us back. Opposition to the project has been coming from environmental groups um, as well as Indigenous people, especially the White Earth and Red Lake Nations, which have been taking the lead on some of the legal challenges to the pipeline. Um, a big concern for the people opposed to the, to the project is the potential threat to Minnesota's environmental resources since the project crosses more than 200 bodies of water and um, hundreds of acres of wetland and, you know, crosses the Mississippi twice, um, including close to the headwaters. And the cultural importance of the lands and waters really magnifies this risk for indigenous people. One person I've spoken to about this is Simone Senegals, who is a member of the Red Lake Nation and one of the leaders of the movement against Line 3.
0: And I live on the Mississippi River. And also, like, in Anishinaabe um, culture, women are responsible for water. Mm -hmm. And so I take that seriously. But also I just, like, I could swim before I could walk. You know, like, just protecting the water is just so important. And I just really, I just feel this, like
1: indescribable sense of responsibility. So Native people also say that because this project could threaten these really important lands and waters along the route, that that also violates their treaty rights to these lands.
0: Hmm. So when you say that Native tribes argue this replacement violates their treaties, can you spell that out for me?
1: So that's referring to the Ojibwe treaties in the 1800s which ceded most of what is now northern Minnesota to the federal government. And the treaties included payments to the tribes as well as the rights to hunt and fish and harvest in those ceded areas. Um, And the U.S. Constitution says that treaties are the supreme law of the land. Um, So indigenous people are pushing for lawmakers to recognize their treaty rights to the areas um, and saying that because it threatens the natural and cultural resources in those areas, it violates their treaty rights.
0: So given their concerns, how do environmentalists and tribes go about challenging the proposal for Line 3 replacement?
1: So during the permitting and approval process, which went on for a full five years, um, opponents of the project were challenging it at really every step of that process that they could. Um, So that process involved a handful of state and federal agencies. One of the most important is the Public Utilities Commission, And a lot of these challenges have centered on approvals from the PUC. So that commission first approved key permits for the project in 2018, and opponents challenged an environmental impact statement in an appeal that year, and the court ordered a revision of the statement. Um, The PUC approved the project again in 2020. And then in November 2020, Enbridge got its final permits from other state agencies as well as a federal permit, and construction started in December.
0: So since 2015, Enbridge has been pushing forward with this project and activists have been trying to stop it.
1: Yeah, and so far Enbridge has succeeded. And they point to, you know, how lengthy this review process has been as evidence that the project's been through really rigorous safety checks and says that like environmental health and the health of the people along the line is their priority. Um, I spoke to Jeremy Gunderson, who is a worker on the Line 3 replacement project who said that he has faith that Enbridge is taking every precaution possible because cleaning up spills wouldn't help their bottom line.
0: Enbridge isn't going to make any money if all this oil were to spill out on the ground. They needed to get to where it's supposed
1: to go so it can be processed and be made ready to sell to the end consumers,
0: ultimately. So construction on the pipeline begins in December 2020. What happens then? What do activists do?
1: So as construction starts, we have a handful of ongoing legal challenges from tribes and environmental groups in Minnesota. Um, And there's also activists who, you know, have been preparing for years to be fighting the pipeline on the ground. So in some cases in the years before the pipeline got its final approval, they started buying land along the route to serve as sort of these central gathering places for opposition to the project. Um, And have since turned them into these camps where people will travel from not only Minnesota but across the country to join these efforts. And some people are living there full time to organize and try to stop construction. Hmm.
0: Can you say more about these camps? Where are they? What do they look like? Who lives there?
1: So there are three main camps along the route, um, and those are in Red Lake, and there's a camp near Palisade, which is north of Aiken, um, and another camp near Cloquet. I visited the Palisade camp um, this winter, and it was interesting pulling up there because it, it sort of looks like any other house. Um, it's just a two-story on this wooded lot sort of in the north woods, but there's security at the front gate, and once you get inside, the yard is full of these little campers and tents, um, and there's pipeline construction happening literally just a few hundred feet away um, so you're in the middle of the woods it's very peaceful but then you have these big trucks pulling pipe and pulling equipment and machinery kind of lumbering down the road um, a couple times every hour when i was there this winter one of the people i spoke with um, is shanai Matson, who is originally from palisade and moved back there with her kids last year to organize against the pipeline full time you know
0: it's mm-hmm. like a great winter. I guess, live into my values. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. You know, in the cities, it was, you know, go to a rally, Mm -hmm. go home. And Mm -hmm. now I'm like, I can't go home.
1: So she said it's been difficult work, and it can feel like her hometown has turned against her.
0: When you're a local person, and they know your family, and they know your network, mm. and they know your name, yeah, you're very vulnerable. Mm. And so there's been efforts to sort of align us as individuals, you know, like, I'm a troublemaker. I'm not someone who's committed to this place, because I lived in the city. You know, uh, yeah, They say yeah. all kinds of things. Um, but the truth is, like, I want to be here, and I'm going to be here no matter what happens, mm-hmm. you know. And what do people do there during the day?
1: People spend their time at the camps, I think, doing three main things, Um, demonstrating against the pipeline, organizing demonstrations and logistics, because it's a lot of work, you know, running these camps with so many moving pieces, people coming and going all the time. Um, When I was at the Palisade camp in the winter, they were doing these sort of daily demonstrations where they would take bullhorns over to the construction zone and sort of share their opinions every morning with the workers there. Um, but they're also always just sort of keeping tabs on construction and almost collecting intelligence about what's going on at these sites. Um, There's also bigger actions, so that might be large protests outside Enbridge offices throughout the route, or even sometimes people chaining themselves to equipment or sitting in trenches to physically stop work. About 200 people were arrested or cited between December and June in connection with these sort of direct actions like that.
0: So what do activists hope to achieve through these camps?
1: So the goal is to slow down construction while these legal challenges are still going through the system. Um, Their concern is related to the situation in Michigan, where Governor Gretchen Whitmer revoked an easement for Line 5 after it was operational, so already carrying oil. Um, but Enbridge refused to shut down the pipeline. The
0: governor set a deadline of yesterday to shut it down, but at this hour, oil is still running through Line 5.
1: But Enbridge refused to shut down the pipeline, and it's still functioning despite her order to shut it down. In a statement to Action News, the company says it will not stop operating unless ordered by a court or regulator. Quote, Line 5 is operating safely, reliably, and is in compliance with the law. So activists here are concerned that Even if one of their legal challenges was successful, if Line 3 was already carrying oil, then Enbridge would act in a similar way and continue operating the pipeline.
0: Hmm. I'm thinking back to the massive demonstration at Standing Rock where people gathered to block construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline, which is now operational. I wonder what similarities and differences you see between the camps opposing Line 3 and the Standing Rock camp?
1: So I think um, Standing Rock has definitely been something that sort of feels like it's looming over this project. Um, And a lot of the people who have been really active in opposing Line 3 here were also at Standing Rock. And I think that was like a very formative experience for a lot of the people in kind of figuring out organizing strategies um, and that sort of thing. I think a big difference is that Standing Rock had that sort of one focal point or like central gathering place that everybody was kind of going to as part of the effort. And in Minnesota, we have 337 miles of pipeline and these 200 plus um, water crossings. So the efforts have been a lot more dispersed here. There have been pretty consistent actions against the pipeline since construction started. Um, But I'd say they were, you know, much smaller scale than what we think of when we think of Standing Rock. Until... Earlier this month, um, when organizers held something called the Treaty People Gathering.
0: A hey, hey, great, great gathering of the people over the pipelines. What a great, great gathering for Mother Earth and the water. We just want to thank you all for coming out. We want to especially acknowledge all them young people.
1: who got And more than 2,000 people traveled to northern Minnesota to take part, including some really prominent activists.
0: Our friend Jane Fonda is here. She's going to talk a little bit. Thank you all so much for being here. Winona Winona mentioned the young people. I want to mention the old people.
1: So in the morning on the first day, there was a march that took place um, north of Park Rapids that was near a site where Enbridge is going to drill under the Mississippi River for one of the pipeline's river crossings. So, this march of about 2,000 people went down the highway um, singing songs and playing hand drums and chanting. And once they got to this bridge near the river crossing, about 150 people actually hiked across this marsh to reach the spot where the pipeline is going to cross the river. Uh, I'm not quite sure how
0: they're going to get anybody out of here now.
1: Um, at that spot, there's sort of this lumber platform that's been laid across the land there by Enbridge to truck out equipment um, and to work from, essentially, and they ended up setting up an encampment that day to stay overnight. If I get arrested, it's okay. I'm, I'm retired. I can stay in jail a few days till y'all get the money up to get me out. <laughs> So at the same time as this march and setting up the encampment was taking place, there was a different action happening nearby at what's called a pump station that's run by Enbridge. Um, And it's like a big work yard that's filled with equipment that um, keeps the oil moving through a pipe, essentially. So about 500 people kind of marched into this pump station Monday morning while there was actually work going on there. Um, and Enbridge said they ended up evacuating about 44 employees from the site. And the people who showed up there ended up sort of occupying this pump station. So in the morning, um, some people had chained themselves to equipment and were really you know, prepared to stay there for the long haul. Um, inside the pump station, I talked to Kia Kiali Bordner, who was sitting under a boom lift with some fellow Unitarian Universalists. Bordner said she came from San Diego to support her fellow indigenous people in the effort. I came knowing that I was going to do what had to be done and um, in whatever capacity I'm getting taken out because they, you know, have changed what they're doing and stopped, not halted, but stopped the pipeline or we've, we've been carried out. Later that day, I talked with Tara Stangler, who is a college student from Wisconsin. As she had her arm locked to a makeshift barricade outside the station. I
0: think about it a lot in terms of, like, when my niece hears about this years from now, she's, she's a baby. Um, but when she hears about this and she asks, you know, like, what did you do?
1: I can say I fought for Indigenous people and I fought for the land. And
0: I, so, I how did the, the treaty people rep- gathering ultimately end?
1: So, at the pump station, about 200 people were either arrested or cited wow. that night on Monday. Um, A handful of people ended up staying into the following afternoon, and there was a handful of arrests then as well. At the encampment by the marsh, um, people ended up staying there for just about a full week. Um, I think on day six, Enbridge sent them a dispersal letter, and the following day, the sheriff sort of cleared out the camp.
0: So construction on the pipeline continues. Where do things stand with the various legal challenges?
1: So, the Minnesota Court of Appeals um, issued a decision within the last week that was a victory for Enbridge and a blow to opponents of the pipeline. And that decision was in a challenge of a few PUC permits for the project. Um, In a majority opinion, two judges wrote that they believed the PUC deserved some deference um, as the, the agency tasked with making decisions about these projects. But there was a dissenting opinion written by one judge who said that he believed that the PUC had interpreted the law wrong, um, and since they were incorrect in their decision making, did not deserve any deference, um, and that he would have reversed the decision and revoked a permit, essentially. Hmm. Um, And there's two other legal challenges still ongoing. One of them is in state court over a Minnesota Pollution Control Agency permit, and the other is in federal court over a U.S. Army Corps of Engineers permit. But in the meantime, um, construction will still be ongoing, and this project has been moving pretty quickly. So Enbridge says that the pipeline is about 60% complete and is on track to be completed by the end of the year, mm. and that they have not been slowed at all by the protests and disruptions to this point.
0: Ryland Eichens, thank you so much for your reporting. Thank you. This show was produced by me, Max Nestorak, and edited by Patrick Kulikin. Special thanks to Johnny Vince Evans, who composed our theme. You can support this show by making a donation to the Minnesota Reformer and by telling your friends and family to subscribe to Reformer Radio. If you want to share ideas or feedback, you can drop me a line at max at MinnesotaReformer, allspelled out.com. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend.